Hello and welcome to BB on the Record, this podcast from British Bandsmen. I'm Mark Good, editor of British Bandsmen, and in the first episode of 2022, I chat to composer, arranger, conductor and educator Alan Fernie. Having been raised in a Scottish mining town with a rich banding tradition, it might be fair to assume that Alan fell in love with brass from the beginning, but that isn't strictly the case, as he explains. Eventually, though, Alan did catch the bug and has gone on to enjoy a diverse and fascinating career in the world of music, from nurturing the next generation to adding to his seemingly endless catalogue of compositions and arrangements. Alan reflects on his musical journey so far, some of his major influences and his treasured experiences, including his involvement in the charity Brass for Africa. But first, how is Alan faring in what continue to be some challenging times? I'm fine and uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying the challenges uh, that we're um, experiencing at the moment um, to to bring music back live. Um, The enthusiasm for most of the kids and most of the bandsmen uh, is fantastic and it's inspiring. And yeah, we're back. As someone immersed in the world of brass music and brass education, Alan, you would of course be used to seeing people for teaching, for conducting, competing, whatever it happens to be. Of course, we all had to transition to new and different ways of working, especially during the lockdowns. I know you were busy with online activities. How did you find it all? I must admit, I found the online teaching uh, quite good, the one-to-one teaching, the Midlothian Council. Um, at the beginning of January 2020 um, set up uh, that we could teach one-to-one online face-to-face and that was actually quite good in some respects. It's certainly quite good for a lot of kids, uh, those with one or two uh, educational needs. It was good to have that focus with them just to teach one-to-one. I must admit, I found the banding thing a challenge, although my two youth bands kept up weekly rehearsals, doing something slightly different, having quiz nights, having you know people in talking with talking to the band and um, just trying to do online rehearsals. I'm very, very grateful for a lot of people for their support in that because I'm not particularly very good at online stuff. But of course, we all had to learn kind of rapidly how to do it. (laughs) So many bands, people will be able to recognise and sympathise with some of the challenges uh, that we all faced during that period of online rehearsals and online activities. How important, though, do you think they were in if nothing else, just keeping things going, sustaining an interest until the time where, thankfully, relatively recently, we've been able to meet again. Absolutely vital. Um, and it became a vital part. Um, you you look forward to band practice, you look forward to some kind of online engagement just to talk to people um, because we do miss that, that contact. It's you just you just know how much fun it is playing your instrument, and I'm, as I say, I'm very grateful for a lot of very skillful people who are able to to deal with the challenges. Um, you know, putting online videos together and uh, setting up Zoom meetings and stuff like that. So it was something to look forward to. Yeah. Recently in Scotland, bands people were able to return to some in-person activity in the form of the Scottish Festival of Brass, the Scottish Open, the Band Supply Scottish Challenge taking place in Perth Concert Hall. And you returned to the stage, Alan, with the National Children's Brass Band of Scotland in a performance therein, Perth Concert Hall. How did you enjoy getting back together with the youngsters? 
Oh, it was fantastic getting them back. It really was. It was just wonderful having the summer course in the first place, you know, with all the things in place to make it a safe course. So to get them back in November was great. It was a very, it was a big challenge to play a program that we'd played about six months ago with only about 40 minutes rehearsal. And uh, also with the meter distancing on stage and the Perth console has never looked bigger on that Saturday morning when I conducted the band. But the children were just magnificent. It's a very inexperienced band, of course. They're under-13s, but you, they don't sound like under-13s. They were, they were tremendous. They really were. I know your role at the National Children's Brass Band of Scotland is very dear to you. How much do you treasure getting to work with those young people as they take the early steps in their musical journey? And of course, with the tutorial and the pastoral teams that exist at the NIBS residential courses. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the teams are fantastic. The, the music team is just superb. The children's band is a real different challenge in so many ways. It's not so much about the music with them. It's all about having fun and making music a really fun and positive thing to do. And I'm so lucky to have gifted tutors along with me who help in that respect. The pastoral staff are just magnificent. Um, you know, they have 30, 40, under 13 year olds to look after and to put to bed every night and get up and wash and breakfast and all the rest of it. Um, their, their job is extraordinary. And, um, you know, we're all just as, as one, you know, there isn't us and them. We're all working with the kids together. So it's, it's great. The pastoral staff are generally brass players as well, which uh, can be very handy this year when we all had one bass. And uh, the lovely Jim Milligan played the bass with us all week. And he thoroughly enjoyed that aspect of it as well, he told me. Now, people listening to the podcast will be able to apply this logic to their own national youth bands wherever they are in the world, I'm sure. But why, Alan, would you say a young person should take that step and apply for a place in any of the bands of the National Youth Brass Band of Scotland? Because it might be something, especially if they're a little bit younger, that might take them out of their comfort zone. One of the things I try and do as the conductor is give them music that they wouldn't normally play in their own band, so that's a challenge. Give them challenging and interesting repertoire without stretching them too far, obviously. Uh, but the fact that they turn up to a residential school and live and eat and sleep the music with people who understand with kind of like-minded souls, you know, everybody goes to Nibs and finds a friend from across Scotland, from a different part of Scotland. And I've saw that with some members of my own band, who were a wee bit kind of shy on the first day. And by the end of the second day, they were um, best friends with, you know, players from other bands. So that that sense of comradeship is amazing as well. So, yeah, it's, it's just a fantastic thing to get involved in. I equate it when I tell the kids at Nibs what it's like. It's, it's like turning up to Hogwarts. Everybody gets it, you know. At your own school, you're maybe being a bit strange because you play a brass instrument. Not in Nibs, you're part of the team. Well, whether at Nibs or in bands far and wide, players of all ages will be very familiar with the music of Alan Fernie, having amassed an extensive collection of compositions and arrangements. <laughs> we'll chat more about those in a little while, but first, Alan, let's listen to one of your recent works, today's piece of the podcast. Tell me about the background to this piece. I'm incredibly fortunate, first of all, to be able to write music uh, for brass band. I find it a real privilege to do that. And I'm also extremely lucky to be involved in this wonderful charity, Brass for Africa, um, as the composer in residence. It's just given me some most extraordinary life experiences in, in my career 
I've met some extraordinary people and not only just famous brass players and musicians such as Alison Balsam and Guy Barker and Winton Marcellus, but just the most extraordinary bunch of people across in Africa. I've been there three times. Kabalagala is actually an area of the city of Kampala, where Brass Africa are based. And it's actually the area where a lot of the bars and restaurants are. Um, it's a bit of a party central kind of part of town. So the piece has got that kind of joie de vivre about it. Well, let's listen to the sound of the Scottish Borders Youth Brass Band performing Kabala Gala by Alan Fernie. Music of Alan Fernie, Kabala Gala, played by the Scottish Borders Youth Brass Band with Alan conducting. That track features on the band's album entitled Starlight. The album is still available and you can get in touch with the Scottish Borders Brass Band Association either 
by its website or its social media pages and someone will be able to look after you there. Alternatively, you can get in touch with Alan directly. Alan, well, let's turn the clock back a bit now to your early experiences in the world of brass bands. Your roots are in the mining town of Newton Grange, somewhere with a proud banding heritage. Was it inevitable that you would get involved and pick up an instrument? Absolutely not at all. I wasn't interested in brass bands at all at primary <laughs> school. And indeed, um, my, my, my old primary school, where I've been a teacher for about 19 years now, by the way, um, didn't even have a music teacher, I seem to remember. So my primary seven report states that I have no musical talent whatsoever. Um, I, got to, I got to high school. And there was two things happened. My dad was a coal miner. I remember them. He was all. He for some reason he was always keen for me to join the silver band. Um, I, I, I wasn't too keen. I quite fancied the pipe band myself, and I also wanted to be in the Beatles. But um, when I got to high school, um, he sadly uh, suffered an accident underground in the coal mine. He broke his leg, and um, I remember going to the hospital to see him and seeing how sad he was. So the next morning at school. Um, literally in, in the music class the teacher says does anybody want to take up brass and I put my hand up just to kind of cheer him up <laughs> and in those days before any parental permissions and everything I was managed to get managed to take a trombone home on the day and I actually took it into hospital to see him <laughs> that night so yeah I also at that point I was aware that the Newton Green Silver Band of course as you say very strong tradition, proud tradition. Um, on the parade, they played a piece of music called the Liberty Bell, but to a 12-year-old, it was the theme music to Monty Python, and I was very impressed. So, <laughs> here I am. <laughs> what a transformation. Now, who were your teachers and, and early influences in those years, Alan? Um, my first teacher was a, a lovely gentleman called George Johnson, who taught quite a few uh, very, very good players around the Scottish banding scene, one in particular, Ian Fleming, the horn player. So uh, George told me I was born to play the trombone when he saw my crooked teeth, and uh, I got a trombone. So I'm very, very grateful to George. I had various teachers uh, all the way through school and also being coached at uh, various band courses. Um, people like Jack Sinclair were very inspirational at Nibs. And uh, also a guy called Tom Martin, a teacher in West Lothian, who I thought was terrific. Uh, when I played with the Lothian Schools Orchestra, he seemed to talk a lot of sense. Uh, when I got to the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, um, I was very influenced by all players. So it was actually four players from the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra who kind of talked and guided me all the way through my college, uh, Morris Temple, uh, Tony Swainson, Nigel Boris, and most importantly, my trombone teacher, Peter Orham, who I just, and I'm very grateful to these four gentlemen to, the, to this day. You mentioned, Alan, that you went on to study at what was the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama these days, the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. At what point did you decide you wanted to pursue music in some shape or form as a career? I'm not sure how it happened. About third or fourth year, I think we were being asked, you know, what we wanted to do. And I just happened to think, oh, I could maybe, I quite fancy the music college, you know, going on. I actually wanted to be a brass instructor. Uh, I really quite liked what Mr. Johnson did. And I thought I could do that. I'd, I'd really like to do that. Um, so, yeah, that would be about maybe 14 or 15 when I thought I could maybe think about doing it. And I was very lucky to get into the academy after, at the age of 17, quite young, actually. 
What were you doing banding-wise in those early years and through to your student days? Just playing music in Grange Silver Band. At the time, they were a very, very good uh, old second section band. Uh, maybe championship some years, some years went up, some years went down, but it was just a great, great bunch of people to be involved in. And I'm, again, very close to a lot of those guys from that generation. It was just great fun to be in the band. And I was also a member of NIBS as well. And through the schools, I was able to take part in the Lothian Region Schools Austria, which was a real, a real eye-opener for me the first time I did it. Life took you to London for further study. Was that always going to be a temporary thing, the London life, or might you have been tempted to stay? I did my postgraduate year at a place called the National Centre for Orchestral Studies, which no longer exists. It's a kind of, it was almost, it was initially run by the BBC, then it was run by the government to train young orchestral players for the British um, orchest- orchestral societies, as it were. I actually, at the end of that, got a trial for English National Opera, and I got some other work uh, here and there. But I, I, I don't know, I miss Scotland tremendously at the time. So I just, I turned the trial down and came back up the road. <laughs> and I sometimes wonder what would have happened had I stayed and stuck it out a wee bit. But um, yeah, I miss Scotland. So I came back up the road as soon as. Home you came and much of your professional career has been immersed in the field of education, helping nurture those of all levels of experience and helping them progress in your roles as teacher and conductor and coach. Is teaching something you always wanted to do or did you fall into it? Um, kind of, I kind of kind of fell into it in a way. I mean, I, I was very keen to do it when I was younger. And then I discovered the orchestral world and thought, wow, that's maybe what I want to do instead. It's a really tough uh, life being a freelance orchestral musician, even more so now, of course. So uh, teaching was bringing in a regular wage and I, I was very lucky to secure a position with Edinburgh Schools. And I was there for about 20 years. I rapidly became aware of when I started teaching what a privilege it was, you know, and always has been my maxim, has been I've had a lot of fun through music, I've had a lot of great experiences. If I can pass on a fraction of that to the kids I work with, then my job is done. How would you say the world of brass instruction or brass tuition has changed over the past few decades? I guess there will be similarities and basic principles might be the same, but... Has there been a shift in approach in any way, do you think? I think especially in high schools, there's been a massive shift uh, with the SQA exams. I remember sitting my, as it was in the day, O-level and higher music and having to play really quite difficult programmes and having to listen to challenge and music and do challenge and things. I'm sure for my higher, we had to do keyboard harmony. We had to actually set a piano and harmonise melodies in the style of Bach. Um, nowadays, the SQA, I think I think they're looking for music for all um, rather than actual excellence. And of course, playing a brass instrument can be really challenging. And especially a lot of kids are asked to play a second instrument now. So they... You know, they'll be given a xylophone or a guitar or a drum kit. And of course, it's much easier to play one of those than it is to try and master a brass instrument. And it is, is really, really quite tough for us now, you know, to try and convince the kids that this is a good thing to do. Keep playing your brass instrument. But the drums is easier, you know. Uh, well, it's not really, but it appears to be for them. So so it is, it is a really difficult thing to do, yeah. I suppose the world has changed, hasn't it? And we live in this world now of 
almost instant gratification and tweets and everything being short and instant and happening very quickly and the idea of going home and spending a lot of time on something might not necessarily be initially appealing but of course we all know the benefits and if someone sticks with it and if they can come out through the other side perhaps with the benefit of activities like nibs well it can be transformational can't it absolutely absolutely i mean you know if, if, if you're patient and dedicated it'll it'll be worth it in the long run and that's half my time is convincing kids about that just saying yeah it'll be fine you're going to find it tricky you're going to make mistakes don't worry about it you'll be great and if they can do that in a group situation if they can join a band or if they can go to nibs or something like that then all the better because they've got that, that that support network of kids around them saying, yeah, it's okay. We can, you know, we can do this together. And together we can make this noise. We can sound like this. And that, that's, that's miraculous every time, every time. Now, earlier on, Alan, you touched on Brass for Africa. Tell me about your involvement in the organisation. How did that relationship come about? Um, actually, I was doing an interview. I was interviewed um, for the BBC Two Radio to listen to the band program, and uh, the guy who ran Brass Africa, Jim Trot, who is an airline pilot, um, listened to it. He said he listened to it in Edinburgh because he was on an overnight stay in the Sheraton Hotel and an overnight stop, um, flying up to Edinburgh and flying back to London the next day. And so he got in touch. Um, said you'd be the kind of guy that might be quite in- interesting to be involved. Uh, nothing much was more was said, but I thought, you know what, I'll write him a little piece. So I wrote my piece, didn't hear anything about it, then saw a YouTube video of these kids in Africa playing this music, and I thought, wow. Um, and then the next thing, you know, they obviously got in touch. I went down to London to meet a few people to play a couple of concerts. Uh, that raised money for the the charity. And the next thing, I was appointed uh, composer in residence. I've also been out there as a teacher. I've been there three times as a mentor to the teachers as well. And it's just one of the best things I've ever done in my life. It's amazing. Having been there, Alan, and seen the work that is taking place, how is Brass for Africa helping those people involved in the programme? The help is extraordinary. One of the best things they do is they empower uh, young girls through brass music education. Um, you know, there, it's a very unequal society, uh, Uganda, and uh, a lot of uh, girls aren't, you know, the education of girls isn't seen as a priority. So it does that fantastically well, and it develops these young people who... I've come mainly from a children's home. The charity started in a children's home. A lot of these kids don't have parents. They don't even know when their birthday is. They don't know what you know what name they were originally. Um, things like that. And and it's it's created this extraordinary thing that they can become music teachers. And indeed, some of them are actually teaching music. Uh, one of our one of our ex students is now a part of the music staff at the international school in Kampala, where she's teaching ambassadors kids from all over the world. Um, and there's also some kids who are who've managed to join the British Army and uh, have um, positions now in the British Army brass bands and military bands as well. And um, they just have a, a, a terrifically gifted squad of people who whose life has been changed through brass music education themselves. And so they're now passing that on to the young people that they deal with. And it's extraordinary. It's not about musical excellence. It's not about creating the best brass band in the world in Africa. It's all about improving lives and um, just creating better opportunities for these young people. 
through brass music education. It's an extraordinary charity and I'm so privileged to be a part of it. Now earlier, Alan, we heard one of your many pieces of music. This desire to write and to arrange, where did it come from and when did it start? Again, absolutely no idea. I have no idea why. Honestly, I couldn't tell. I thought it might be quite cool. I think with the Wolfgang Region Orchestra um, concert, um, so it was an autumn course I went to, and that influenced me in so many ways. We played a new piece of music by a composer, um, Ronald Stevenson, I think his, his name was. But this ex- impossibly exotic fellow came along and he wrote this extraordinary music for us, which I've never heard to this, to this day, by the way. And I thought, oh, that's, that's quite interesting, isn't it? So I started kind of mucking about with things myself. As I said, back in the day at school, you had to be a fairly uh, competent on the keyboard or piano to get into the Royal Scottish Card Music and Drama. So I, my mum bought a piano uh, for me for £10 for someday in her work, a, a, an old pub piano. And I just started mucking about with things and, and thinking, oh, I can do this. I can, I can, I can kind of do this. I'm self-taught. I've never had any lessons at all in my life in composition and arrangement. We got keyboard, we got harmony lessons at the academy. There wasn't even a composition department back in the, the late seventies, early eighties. Um, I was taught harmony by a, a great gentleman called George McPhee uh, from Paisley Abbey, and um, who again is another big influence on me. And I just gradually kind of fell into it. Um, we were playing, we formed a brass quintet while we were at the academy, Caledonia Brass, which of course went on to play for a good 15, 20 years after we all left college and had some um, some illustrious names in it, like Raymond Tennant, Chris Bradley and the like. Um, and I started arranging for that. I started just doing these pencil done arrangements and just, um, and it all kind of went from there. Sometimes I've no idea where it came from, but here I am again. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the first times I may have uh, seen you in action was perhaps with Caledonia Brass at a concert in Campbelltown for the Kintyre Music Club. That's right, we did a lot of music societies in those days, yeah. Was it a case of, of basically learning on the job then as far as the writing and the arranging was concerned, hearing it played, getting that feedback and continuing to hone your craft? Absolutely. It's, it's all about listening and trial and error and making mistakes you're allowed to make mistakes you know you learn from your mistakes and it's still something I'm, I'm doing today I mean I'm still writing to this day and I still have to think a lot about what I do and just is it going to work I'm, I never ever take it for granted that it's going to sound good I, 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 will, I worry about every piece I write you know hope, hope, hopefully somebody will like it along the line <laughs> <laughs> For emerging young composers and arrangers, is that the advice you would give, Alan, to write and to get people to play your music and to just keep going? My big break as an arranger came, and again, another big influence on me is Richard Evans, of course, conducting Nibs. But at the time, he was a conductor for the Leyland Vehicles Band. I was actually playing a, a competition that he was conducting, and he heard me play, and he was quite keen on what I was doing. So he, he asked me down to join Wayland Vehicles Band. And again, I just started teaching. I'd just, um, you know, got this new job and I thought I, I couldn't really pack it in. So I said no to him uh, and I felt terribly sorry. So I sent him down one of my first ever arrangements. Uh, to, and to his eternal credit, he, he should have ripped it up. He should have just thrown it in the bin, but he didn't. And they ended up playing it in brass and concerts called When I'm 64. 
and they played it in brass and concert, and that was the start of things. So yes, for young composers, get a name band to play your music. Okay, get your music out there, get somebody big to play it, and people will take notice. It doesn't have to be somebody that big, you know, but just get it out there and get it played. And of course, you know how bands are; they'll hear something. Oh, I want to play that. We want to play that. Yeah. So that that's important. Yeah. Of all your works, and there must be rather a lot. This is a tricky one. Are you able to pinpoint a piece of which you're particularly proud, or perhaps a piece that holds a special place in your heart? It's one of the peculiar things about musicians, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm nowhere near in the same league, but I hear of composers who have written very, very famous pieces of music um, who don't particularly like them. <laughs> uh, apparently, Holst wasn't hugely fond of the planets, and Walton thought Passade was okay, but I've written much better things. So, I mean, there are certain pieces of mine that people do and do really like a lot. I know that for a fact. Um, I've, yet to, I've yet to write my favourite piece. I hope that every piece I write, and I mean every piece, be it a four-bar beginner little you know, band piece up to a big test piece, I hope every, I, I want every piece to be the best piece I've ever written. But I have not any huge favourites, particularly myself. Or if I do, nobody's ever heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> now, another one of your recent works, Summer Overture, was recently recorded as part of a project with the Scottish Brass Band Association. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, the, the project was really interesting. There was four of us, Gareth Bowman, uh, Ian Monday, Cameron Mabin and myself were chosen to write three uh, pieces ostensibly for youth band. Um, and I was very, very privileged to be part of that project. Uh, the Summer Overture is, we played it with the children's band uh, at the Scottish Festival of Brasdale. It's basically about the nibs. It's about me turning up to nibs um, from Newton Grange Band, where we played good repertoire, um, especially contests. I seem to remember we were playing the, the Severn Suite and the Moorside Suite, stuff like that. That was just great grounding for a young player. But we turned up to Nibs and played this peculiar, extraordinary music by people like Edward Gregson and Thomas Wilson. And I was absolutely smitten by it. I thought it was wonderful. Um, this this sound, this sound um, language that they had and the atmosphere it created um, through nibs, you know, for the residential thing, there just seemed to be a spirit in the air. So I wanted to recreate that um, when I wrote this piece. Um, I turned up back to nibs in 2012 as a tutor, originally with the children's band, and I was delighted to find that spirit still there. It was still there. So I wanted to write something enough trying to get that spirit. And I've, I've basically taken the language that Edward Gregson uses with all consecutive fourths and fifths and block harmony and uh, trying to recreate that. And it's, it's been a really interesting experience for me. Great to hear of that. Well, Alan, as we approach the end of our conversation today, how are you feeling about the weeks and months ahead and the way that brass bands will hopefully be able to continue moving forward after the challenging months of recent times? We'll need to adapt to something that I don't think is going to go away. Um, but we, you know, we just have to learn to live with it and adapt and just keep doing what we love doing. It is a positive thing um, and it brings great enjoyment to so many people. We just have to keep going. We just have to keep doing it and adapting in, in whatever way we can. It's just great to be back playing and uh, hopefully it will continue forever.
That's it for this episode of BB On The Record. Thanks to Alan Fernie and thank you to you for listening. You can enjoy a digital subscription to British Bandsman. It costs just £42.99 for one year. For the latest news and interviews, make sure you don't miss out. Go to BritishBandsman.com and click on subscribe. As for this podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Or just ask your smart speaker to play the BB On The Record podcast. Please leave a review if you can, the more the merrier. Join me next time on BB On The Record. Bye for now. 